Chapter 8 of The Fortune Hunter, a novel of New York Society. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly S. Taylor. Father, dearest name of all, Sprague. Mr. Mordaunt was sitting in his gloomy parlor. A penny newspaper lay upon the table before him, but apparently he had scanned its contents. For editorials to advertisement, it seemed to afford more interest. He threw the paper aside and began pacing the room, when a knock at the street door diverted his attention. It was precisely the same hour at which Mr. Badger had honored him with a visit some weeks previous, and as Mr. Mordaunt knew there were other claims against him which might have been placed in that indefatigable gentleman's hands, the possibility of his neighborhood instantly suggested itself. The same suspicion must have crossed the old beldame's mind as she hobbled grumblingly to open the door, for she protruded her head into the parlor and said significantly, "'If it bees he, I warrant he don't get his ugly face inside the doors this time.' After the usual difficulty attending unlocking and unbolting, the door was opened. Mr. Burdant listened with some anxiety. The first sound he heard was an ejaculation of surprise from the old woman. It was followed by a light step traversing the entry. The parlor door opened, and Aria Walton stood before him. Her first impulse was to throw herself into his arms, but he repelled her coldly, and exclaimed with even more than his usual sternness, "'What brings you here?' Was it not my express command that you should never cross this threshold? Arya's cheek grew even paler than when she entered. A sudden dizziness seized her, and she would have fallen had not Mr. Mordaunt caught her rudely by the shoulder. She recovered at his touch, and at the same time regained sufficient self-possession to seat herself. Arya, child, what ails you? Are you ill? demanded he with less harshness. "'Child, am I your child? They say I am. Father, may I call you by that name?' And Arya threw her arms around his neck, and, for the first time since Dr. Chadwick's visit, burst into tears. "'What do you mean? Are you mad?' "'Oh, uncle, father, beloved father, let there be no further mystery between us. You do not, cannot know—' How I have longed to be blessed with a parent's love! How my heart has yearned within me to evince the devoted affection of a child! If you are indeed my father, oh, tell me so! Let me be all that a child can be to you! I am, I am, am I not your child? Would to God that you were! exclaimed Mr. Mordaunt, with the first ebullition of tenderness which Aria had ever seen him display. "'Then it is false, and I am not?' "'No, you are not my child, so help me heaven.' "'What am I, then? Remove this mystery, I implore you. "'Uncle, at least you are my uncle.' "'I will not be questioned any further,' said Mr. Mordaunt, "'resuming his usual cold demeanour. 
It is useless to forbid me. I must question. I must know more. Have I a father? Have I a mother? Do they live? Who am I? Do you dare disobey my commands? I dare anything rather than suffer this terrible, heart-rending fears I have endured for the last few hours. Uncle, beloved uncle, do not turn away from me. If ever I needed your kindness, I need it now. If ever you had heart for a moment grew warm towards me, do not let it now be cold. Hear me this once. It is the first time I have ever disobeyed your commands, and it shall be the last. Could you but know with what joyful heart I sprang from my bed this morning, with what heavy, wretched one I now implore you to grant my request, you could not refuse. I received a visit from Dr. Chadwick today, his son, Edgar, a few days ago. We have long been attached to each other, and a few days I accepted his hand. His father this morning came to me and... Oh, how shall I tell you the barrier to my union with his son, which he pointed out? Mr. Mordaunt listened, without attempting to interrupt her, but as she spoke the last words, he struck his clenched hand against his forehead, and Aria could distinctly hear the sound of his teeth grinding against one another. Uncle, do not call me uncle, do not touch me. You are nothing to me, nothing would to God you were not. Leave me. Your presence is hateful. Your existence is a lifelong misery to me. Mr. Mordaunt started up to leave her, but Aria followed him and threw herself at his feet. Answer me one question, only one. Am I a child of dishonor? Am I what most dreaded to be? What he told me I was? Yes, cried Mordaunt with demoniacal vehemence. The child of shame, of dishonor most foul. Go, hide your face where it can never remind me of whose child you are. With these words, he rushed from the room and the house. Aria, deprived of all power, sank crouching on the floor, but though she sat there tearless, motionless, and apparently lifeless, she was not so fortunate as to forget her misery by becoming insensible. He'd better go before he comes back, or there's no knowing what will happen said a voice from behind her. Is it true, then? Is it all true? It's just every word as true as if I'd spoke it myself. There's no use grieving your heart out about what can't be helped, nor never will. But my father and mother, tell me, if you have any compassion, are they alive? Perhaps they be, perhaps they not be. It's not to me you must be coming for secrets that don't concern you. If ye just don't want to wish that your tongue was better off, you won't ask that question again. Ye best be going. Your end's done here. There's no help for it. No help indeed. Arya had hardly breathed these words before her heart reproached her. Was there not always one source of consolation for the afflicted? Were not sufferings lightened to those who granted strength to endure them? Was there not consolation, then, to be found at the throne of the giver of all strength? Doth not he ever temper the wind to the shorn lamb? Aria wrapped her shawl about her, gathered her veil in thick folds over her face, said a few kind words to old Tabitha, who stood there shaking her head and urging her with gestures to depart, 
and set out to return home. She was walking up Broadway at a quick pace, and was yet at some distance from the house of Mr. Lemming, when she was unexpectedly joined by Mr. Brainerd. Nothing could have been more inopportune than this encounter. Wherever he had been in company of her of late, he had always found some opportunity of pouring those sweet nothings in her ear, which it was almost impossible to misunderstand, although he never ventured to say anything of a positive nature, lest he be checked by her coldness. But coldness from Aria he had little cause to fear, for her dread of giving pain was so great that she shrank from wounding even a person whom she did not esteem. This was the first time Mr. Brainer had ever seen her alone, and, as he walked beside her, he could not forbear expressing his rapture at their meeting in the most enthusiastic language. Aria, with a strong effort, banished the thoughts that were filling her soul with dejection, and tried to converse on everyday topics, but she was wholly unused to disguise her feelings, and Brainerd thought that her voice had never sounded so sweet, while its sadness moved him even more than her joyous tones had ever done. He loved Arya as truly as he was capable of loving anything but himself. Sensations were awakened in her presence, which he had never before experienced. His restless, excitement-seeking disposition then seemed wholly satisfied with the object before him. He was no longer cold and calculating, and without a wish that centered in, not in self. She seemed to him more than all the world. He fancied that he thought her happiness of more importance than his own, and at moments he was ready to make any sacrifice which would ensure him her continued presence, and give him the one power of contributing to her felicity. So potent was her influence over him that he now lost all control over himself. Esther, Miss Adair, Mr. Badger's persecution, and Mr. Ellery's counsels were all alike forgotten. In the most passionate language he declared his love for her, conjured her at least to accord him the privilege of being near her, and of knowing that, if she granted him nothing else, she did not refuse him all hope. Of marriage he did not venture to speak. A horrible thought sometimes shot through his brain, which, in spite of his softened nature, prevented him. Might he not possess her, and yet redeem his fortunes by marrying another? His viviated nature could not comprehend her angelic purity, even while he worshipped it, and in the excitement of passion, all his wildest imagination could desire seemed possible and feasible. Arya was perfectly overwhelmed by this new misfortune, for such she could not avoid regarding it. Again and again she strove to interrupt Mr. Brainerd, but her voice choked. She suffered so much herself that it only made her feel more keenly how dreadful it was to make others suffer. She had courage enough to perform any act of self-sacrifice, but not firmness sufficient to annihilate the hopes of another. Had she placed the construction upon his words, which a more experienced person would have given them, her wounded dignity would have taught her to silence him with a glance, to make him cower before her, 
and loathe himself for conceiving so foul a project. But she was too guileless to detect guilt. In the passion of Brainerd, she saw everything to excite pity and nothing that inspired anger. When she at length found voice to reply, she told him that there were circumstances connected with her history that would ever prevent her forming a matrimonial connection. She felt it her duty to add that she did not reciprocate his attachment, but on this point she touched but lightly, and concluded by entreating him to spare her in future the pain which any allusion to the subject might occasion. To a man of the world, and a man blinded by passion, the gentleness of her mien gave all the hope which her language might have destroyed. Brainerd, unabashed, would have wounded her by further solicitations, had he not been interrupted by their meeting Mr. Lemming, whom Aria induced to join them. They walked the remaining distance home almost in silence. Brainerd was too much excited to speak excepting on one subject. Aria feared that her lips would betray the emotions of her heart, and Mr. Lemming was habitually thoughtful and taciturn. Brainerd excused himself from entering the house, but, as he parted from Aria, he stretched out his hand, and unwilling as she was to extend hers, she had not the heart to refuse it. Mr. Lemming's back was turned, and Brainerd would have pressed her fingers to his lips, but this Aria resolutely prevented, and the reproachful look with which she accompanied her action quickly overawed him. It was long past midnight before the light was extinguished in Aria's chamber. The characters she was tracing with her pen were so often blotted out with her tears that she was more than once forced to commence anew, for... Alas, her letter was to Edgar Chadwick. End of chapter 8